Welcome to another Calvary Baltimore B-Side with our senior pastor, Josh Plantholt. B-Sides are a companion to the weekly sermon, giving an in-depth look behind the teaching. Now with running commentary to complement this week's sermon, here's Pastor Josh. Uh, We are in Revelation chapter 13 today, and we will be in uh, verse 11 through 18. Uh, Let's hop right in here because we have so much to get to. Uh, So let's hop in. Verse uh, Revelation 13, verse 11. Uh, Then I saw another beast rising out of the sea. So both the beasts, the the sea beast and the land beast, have risen. Uh, And remember, so if we're we're thinking anti-trinity, we want to think about how this is similar and... Uh, antithetical to the Holy Trinity. Uh, And so if we want to think about this as a type of incarnation, we remember that Jesus descended down to humanity to save humanity. But here we see both the sea beast and the land beast rising uh, from a lower status uh, here to damn humanity. So Jesus has to descend to earth and the land and sea beast ascend from the earth. <laughs> uh, and it had two horns, like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority on the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. This is another connection to the land beast as a false Holy Spirit. Uh, because the Holy Spirit descended to earth at Pentecost, and it caused the people to worship Jesus. Well, here the anti-spirit rises and leads people to worship the false Christ, the anti-Christ. Also, Pentecost happened where? In Jerusalem. And here this abomination of desolation is set up where? Where the false Holy Spirit gets people to worship the false Christ. In Jerusalem. So lots of parallels here. Another interesting thing, Peter Lightheart turned me on to this, uh, and I think he's exactly right. When God created Adam and Eve, he created us to have dominion over the fish, over the flying things, over everything that moves on the earth. So man was made to have dominion over the beasts. But here what we're seeing in Revelation is the beast is making man come under the authority of the beast to worship the beast. So under God, God creates man to lord over beast. But under Satan and the evil trinity, the beast make lord over man and make man worship the the beast. Uh, And so Peter Lightheart, what he was getting at was man was meant to have mastery over the beast, not the beast to have mastery over man. And so this section then of scripture is just one of complete hierarchical disorder. Um, It's supposed to be, you know, God, man, beast, and and now it's inverse. So everything is out in chaos land. (laughs) It's it's complete hierarchical structural disorder, um, which we see that's what happens when Satan interjects himself into things like the family unit, the the husband, the father is to lead the house, and then the mother, and then the children. As soon as Satan get energetic, Genesis chapter 3, she will desire to lord over her husband, and things start getting 
messed up uh, in this way. Uh, verse 13, it performs great signs and even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. I am convinced. Convinced. My watch dinged me. I am convinced that this false prophet's ministry is almost entirely in Jerusalem. One of the clues to this is, is his rising from the land. And of course, setting up the statue of the Antichrist at the temple. And remember, the sea can reference the Gentiles, the land can reference um, the, the land of Israel. And then of course we see that this entire scene of creating a statue, having people worship, all of this comes from Jerusalem. But another reason I think this is all based in Jerusalem is his sign. He performs all of these signs, and one of the signs that he performs that's specific for us to know is he calls down fire from heaven. Why does it matter that he calls fire down from heaven? Why do we need to know that he performs lots of signs, but he does this sign? Because in Israel's history, calling down fire from heaven was a sign of God's favor. So I want you to think about the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. It was there that Elijah faced off against the prophets of Baal. And remember that there were all the prophets of Baal on one side, and all of God, and then Elijah on the other, and whoever was truly, whoever's God was the true God could call down fire from heaven. And of course, the fire, the the the, the, the Baalites could not call fire down from heaven, and Elijah has that great scene. Maybe he's napping, maybe Baal is pooping, you know, he's, he's making fun of him. And then Elijah prays, and fire comes down from heaven and, and burns it up, and it was a sign it was a sign that he was a prophet from God. Uh, and so here, I'm, I'm imagining this false prophet is, is a type of anti-Elijah, in a sense, in which he will call down in, uh, fire from uh, the sky. Now, what, are the what does the false prophet do in today's story? Well, he calls down fire from heaven like God has done, of course, most famously in Elijah, but also for, he, he does this, God does this for David, he does this for Solomon, he does this for Abraham. So point being, this false prophet will look like a true servant of God to the Jewish people, specifically to the Jewish people who love and adhere to the Old Testament. Now, I, wanted to, I was thinking about this and I wanted to add a layer on top of this that I wanted to share. Did you know today even today, the Jewish people are still waiting for Elijah's return. To, to this day, 2023, the Jewish people, they, they know the story Elijah was taking up into a chariot of fire, and they believe he is going to return again. Now, let me ask you a question. If the false prophet stands in Jerusalem and performs many signs and wonders and then calls down fire from heaven, 
it would not be at all surprising <laughs> to believe that the Jewish people would believe the false prophet to be a type of Elijah, to be Elijah. Now, what was the coming of Elijah supposed to be about? Okay, so they believe Elijah's supposed to return. Elijah's taken up into a chariot of fire. Elijah's supposed to return. Why? Why is Elijah supposed to return according to the Old Testament? Malachi 4, 5 says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So if they believe the false prophet to be Elijah, and if the Antichrist, and, 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 and if this false prophet says the Antichrist is the one he's preparing the way for, as Malachi lays out, <laughs> then it would be natural if the Jewish people believe that the false prophet is Elijah, and on this false prophet is saying that the Antichrist is the Messiah, it makes total sense that they would then accept the Antichrist as the son of David, as Messiah. Also really interesting, did you know the Muslims believe Jesus was a prophet? The Muslims believe in Jesus. They just don't believe that he was the son of God. They believe the Apostle Paul altered the texts um, and was mischievous in that way, but Jesus never died on the cross, but because he was a true servant of Allah, he was taken up into heaven, he was never killed, because they have a war-victory mindset that if you are truly faithful, you could never lose in battle. Allah, power structure, would never let that happen. Which is why ISIS, they were radically Muslim, and they believed that there is no way they could be defeated because of their piety and zeal towards the Quran. And of course, Allah. So they believe Jesus was a true prophet of God, and they believe that Jesus is returning. Do you know that? The, the Muslim people believe that Jesus is going to return, but not as God, but as a prophet. Well, in the end times, the Jewish people believe that, that Jesus, when he returns, he will be a great military leader. So again, it will be no surprise if the Muslims rally around the Antichrist who claims to be the Messiah, Jesus, believing that he is the return of Jesus, especially through all these signs and wonders as well. So we, we see the Jewish people have a spot in this dynamic to take hold of. We see the Muslims have a place here to believe and take hold of. Uh, the world is gonna looking for a leader that that they're gonna want to take hold of. Uh, you can just see how all of the world's major religions are colliding in this one person's ministry. So he is set up to take over. Uh, let's do verse fifteen. But before we do that, I'm gonna move my desk down. Woo. <laughs> I was planning on doing this whole thing standing, but <laughs> I was at the gym this morning, and I'm so sore. I'm so sore. Verse 15. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. 
Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead. So we're told that the mark must go on the forehead or the right arm. Have you ever wondered why? I remember being a little kid <clears throat> watching those Left Behind movies. And I remember thinking, gosh, if I get left behind, I'll get the mark on my left hand. <laughs> and then I can still eat. I'll cheat the system because uh, it won't count according to God. But that, that brings up a question. Why not the left hand? Why can't the mark go anywhere? Why, can, why, why does it have to be the right hand and the forehead? Why couldn't it be the left hand? Why couldn't it be the foot? Why not the belly? Why the forehead and the right hand? Well, I... I can think of two very strong reasons why that is. First is the Shema. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4, we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes forehead this connection here is those who get the mark of the beast on their forehead or right arm are taking the beast's law as the word of God, as is laid out in Deuteronomy 6. That as the believers look at the word of God, they, they look at Jesus and all that he said as scripture, as God's word, so those who receive the mark of the beast look at the Antichrist's word as scripture and God's word. Like the Shema says, they're going to literally bind the mark on themselves. Uh, as a sign of allegiance, as a way of living towards this man's law, this man's word and decree. This is a complete allegiance to him. Uh, again, again, you know, th this may be playing on a deep connection the Antichrist and the false prophet will have on the Jewish people. There seems to be a specific um, intentionality of deception locked on Israel at this time, that Satan, above all, wants to have Israel fall in the deepest sense of apostasy, uh, because we know that all Israel will be saved in the end. You know, there's this um, great revival that's coming to the Jewish people. They will look on whom they have pierced and mourn. And so uh, Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet are working against that. Uh, secondly, Zechariah eleven seventeen says, and this one's a little less well known, I think. Woe to my worthless shepherd! Woe, woe to my worthless shepherd, who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered and his right eye utterly blinded. So the mark of the beast is given after the beast is mortally wounded and then healed. And it seems Zechariah eleven seventeen is describing where he's going to be mortally wounded. He's the worthless shepherd, the false shepherd. And it is on the arm, right arm, seems to be, and the, the forehead, the right eye. So 
Uh, again, the very place, so the, the Antichrist is going to get wounded. It says by the sword, he's going to be wounded somehow on his right side. Uh, and he's going to miraculously seemingly recover. And that's when the Antichrist creates, or the false prophet creates a statue. And the statue's going to say, you know, everyone's going to say, get the mark. And where do they get the mark? In the very places he was miraculously healed. Uh, and, and so again, this is... Not only them saying that they believe him to be the Messiah, that they are coming under his authority, but they're also testifying of his resurrection. They're not only saying that he is a leader, but that he has resurrected. They will marvel at this healing, and they will look at him as the Christ. Um, which, of course, would be wrong. <clears throat> Verse 17. So no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So the... And then verse 18. This calls for wisdom. So just like how the section of the land or the sea beast ended, remember it, it ended with a direct word to us, the reader. But now, here we are at the section, the end section of the land, and we're seeing the same exact thing. We're seeing a direct word to us. So God almost stops the Samino, the, the images, and now speaks directly to us. And he says, now this calls for wisdom. So there's going to be ways to apply this and work this out. And what we're to work out and apply is, is we're, we're to have wisdom and calculate these numbers. Uh, so let's keep reading. Verse 18, we'll finish our reading. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is 666. I'd like to talk for a little bit about this number. <clears throat> As I shared on uh, on Sunday, the 666 may be calculating to Nero. I think there's a very strong case for that in both the Greek, the Hebrew, and the Latin. Uh, and, of course, in the variant there. Uh, and if this is the case, that may imply that the Antichrist who comes to power by way of the sea uh, might be coming from a sign of the Gentiles. Nero, of course, was a Gentile. If the Antichrist who rises from the sea, is a type of Nero, 666. It would make sense that that now sea monster connects very well to a Gentile monster. Now the Bible's connected those things for us, so it fits pretty cleanly. So it seems very strongly that the Antichrist is going to rise from a place of the Gentiles first. And if the and if the Antichrist comes from the sea, uh, and his mark is in reference to Nero, there is some. This is a implying a little bit that the Antichrist might come to rule from within Rome. Nero ruled in Rome. The sea beast comes from the sea. Rome is on the sea. The sea beast comes from the sea. The Gentile nations. Uh, there's all, a lot of signs pointing to Rome here. So, and, and now, you know, we have to wonder, um, after the rapture, are there going to be a lot of Catholics left? Uh, or maybe the rapture has yet to happen. Uh, and there are lots of Catholics still uh, in Rome around the Vatican and, 
Uh, maybe he rises to power amongst those ranks. You know, I, I don't know. But we've seen that the Muslim religion's going to fit easily in here. We see that uh, Judaism's going to fit easily in here. And now it may be that Catholicism may fit easily here if he comes from Rome. Uh, again, I'm, I'm not saying that's the case, but clearly it seems that he's coming from, from Rome or from Italy. Uh, it seems that way. Uh, and we got to wonder. These are questions we should probably think about. Uh, secondly, uh, the number six, uh, Mike Baker came up to me after church on Sunday, and he, he helped me fill in some of the thoughts I had here uh, that, that it became up to a point where I thought it was shareable. <laughs> uh, what is the number six? What, why is that man's number that Revelation tells us? Why is num the number six man's number? Because man was made on the sixth day. We go back to the first seven days of creation. But what's interesting about this is the sixth day is a day of work. All the first six days are work days. And it is not until the seventh day that man can enter into God's day, into a day of rest. So here's what 666 may imply. That under the Antichrist, the world will never enter a seventh day. Like Pharaoh who had the Israelites make brick without straw, he was a harsh master, so the Antichrist will 666. Humanity under his leadership will work, work, work without any rest. They will never enter into Sabbath completion under the false god of Satan and the evil Trinity. And this is so true. Whenever Satan gets involved in something, there is restlessness. Whenever sin is injected into something, you'll notice you will get supernaturally tired <laughs> and worn out because evil, evil is a master of sixes. <laughs> It'll have you work, work, work. You will have no peace of mind. You will have no peace of body. You'll, they'll, they'll constantly having you run around, but godliness, God has us enter into a seven, into a piece of rest. Once every seven days, we are to rest from our labors as an act of worship. It's a reminder to break free from the tyrant and rest in God's provision. And so, you know, the, the, this restlessness, the 666 work, work, work under the tyranny of the Antichrist is also somewhat true of all human masters. Any master besides God Almighty will enter us into restlessness. You know, you start living for people's approval, you're coming under a harsh master, and you'll never find rest. You're one of those people that have to restlessly climb the corporate ladder. You're, you're never going to enter into that seven. It's not going to happen because you've come under a harsh master. And so maybe that's what the 666 is pointing to here as well. <clears throat> Uh, also, our last one here, I believe the call to calculate, to use math, points strongly to the person of Nero and all the biblical numerology I've pointed out today and yesterday. And so I believe that's the appropriate way to, to understand because we're called to calculate. Um, very specific wording there that I don't think we can find ourselves out of. However, 
whenever you want to figure out what something means in the book of Revelation, I've said this so many times, you don't go to the newspaper, you don't go to history. The first thing you do is you go to the Word of God. If God has placed something in His Word, the most likely explanation to understand it is somewhere else in His Word. God has completed His canon so that we may understand it. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible, is the saying. Uh, and, and interesting, interesting, did you know that there's one other place in the entire Bible where 666 is found? I didn't know that before I started studying this. There's the one in Revelation, and then there's another 666 in the Bible. And fascinatingly, it's in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14. So I, I actually want to take the time here, and I want to read this to you. It, it's going to take probably a minute and a half, two minutes. And I, I think the connections here are beyond coincidental. I think they're profound, and I think they're purposeful from God. Um, so I want to read this to you. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14. And just as a word of warning, I have not combed through this in, in, in Hebrew, uh, so I'm probably going to butcher some of these names, so be gentle. <laughs> uh, now the weight of gold, 1 Kings 10, 14. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. There we are. Beside that, which came from the explorers and from the businesses of the merchants and from all the kings of the West and from the governors of the land, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. And the king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps and the throne had a round top each uh, and on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests isn't that interesting while 12 lions stood there one on each end of the of a step on the six steps the like of it was never made in any kingdom all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything as in the days of Solomon. They had so much money, silver was like dirt, essentially. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Haram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom, and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his presents, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses and mules, so much year by year. Excuse me. Then Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king uh, in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the, now here's one I'm going to butcher, Shephelephelah, 
And Solomon's importance. Now, see, I want to get this. Shephala. And Solomon's importance of horses was from king and Ku, and the king's traders received them from Ku at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150, and so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kingdoms of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. <clears throat> now, when we read this list in 1 King 10, it reads like a good thing. Solomon is growing strong, he's growing wealthy, he's growing in military might. This seems to be a good thing. You want the king of Israel to be mighty, right? But actually, this whole passage is sinful. Partly. Most of it. Deuteronomy 16.14 says, when you come to the land the Lord your God is giving you. So this is what Moses told the people that God God, God had given to him. When you come to the land that you're, the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king uh, over me like all the nations that are around me. So when you have a king like Solomon... You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. What did Solomon just do? He acquired many, many horses. He had 12 thousand horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Did Solomon have many wives? Yeah. A ton. Nor shall he acquire for himself, you ready for this last part of Deuteronomy, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Solomon gathered 666 talents of gold. The future kings of Israel were instructed to not do three things, which Solomon did all three. <laughs> and these three things that Solomon did defiled the land according to God. The 666 was the beginning of a great rebellion and apostasy, not only in Solomon's life, but in the life of many Israelites. With this prosperity came a real lack of a devotion to God. And what I think we can connect here as we connect 1 Kings 10 to Revelation 13 is the Antichrist will be a type of Solomon. You know, we're told that he has hidden knowledge in Daniel. He'll be an incredibly brilliant man. He'll be well-spoken. People will want to come. He's the boastful horn. People will want to come and receive from his wisdom. We see that all the kings of the world will also want to come to the Antichrist. But that he will defile the land with everything that he touches. Because he will be living contrary to everything that God sets out in his law. And as the story of 1 Kings go, not long after Solomon's death, Israel degraded into a pagan place. It became hell-like. I think, I, I could be fuzzy on the math here, is either 40 or 70 years after the death of Solomon is when Elijah has to come and confront the, the prophets of Baal. It did not take long for the whole country to fall into hell and ruin. 
And eventually, because they had defiled the land, they were eventually then brought into exile. First, the, the temple was plundered uh, by the Egyptians and then eventually into Babylonian captivity. And as the story of Revelation goes, after the Antichrist's death, those who followed him in this rebellion will be also be brought into exile and later into the lake of fire. Uh, and so there are some pretty strong connections here between Solomon and the Antichrist that we, we want to be aware of. Uh, now lastly, uh, before we go, uh, last little bit, five minutes. Sunday I spoke about how the mark of the beast would not be the mark until the Antichrist and the false prophet demanded that the world received it in the end times. And this is when I ran through, um, you know, Bitcoin's not the mark of the beast. Social security numbers are not the mark of the beast. Until this moment in time happens, uh, we don't want to claim anything's the mark of the beast. However, <laughs> on the other side of the coin, the mark of the beast is an outward expression of something that has happened inwardly. It is the outward mark of a spiritual standing. The mark simply reveals what has already happened on the inside. And so in a very real way, as Jesus alluded to in John 8, 44, no, the mark of the beast is not here today physically, but it, but it already is in some ways spiritually. There are so many people alive today who have already given their allegiance, their worship to the beast, to those of an antichrist spirit. And loved ones, <laughs> if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you are saved. When, when your allegiance, your life is given to Jesus Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, soon as you believed, you were sealed, marked with the promise of the Holy Spirit. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, you have been marked by him and you are saved. But if you step into eternity, having rejected Jesus Christ, you will have stepped into eternity with the seal, the mark, the adoption of the beast. Jesus says in John eight forty four. He's speaking to the Pharisees here. You are of your father, the devil. So the devil can be someone's father. And this is the whole thing about federal headship, which I'm not going to get into here. But when we step into eternity, we either step into eternity as under God or under Satan. Who we have to choose our representative so Jesus says in John 8, 44, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So as we read about the intent, you know, we, we can look at the end times and go, man, that's going to be so intense and tough and what hard decisions are going to have to be made. And we can read about the intensity of the choices the end time believers are going to have to make. And sinfully, we can forget that we have to make the same exact choices today. 
Yeah, they might be put under more physical pressure, but we're under the same spiritual pressure. Satan is demanding our worship. Those of the Antichrist spirit are demanding our worship. The, 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 the spirit of the false prophet, the anti-spirit, the spirit of lies, as I ran through in John 1, 5, 1 John 5 uh, on Sunday, that there is the spirit of error that is demanding our worship. And we, just like these end-time believers, we have to choose. Do we want the mark of the beast, or do we want to be marked by Jesus Christ as, as, as his? We have to choose just like these people. And not choosing is choosing. You're going to cave. To not choose Jesus Christ is to reject Jesus Christ. You have to choose. And so we're under these same sorts of spiritual pressures. Uh, and, and if we feel lackadaisical to that uh, fact, if we feel unmoved by that fact, um, We've numbed ourselves to the reality, to spiritual reality. And we need to know that, that every single one of us, we are going to die. <laughs> and we are going to stand before God Almighty, and he's going to place us where we are going to be for the rest of eternity. Eternity's a long time. <laughs> it's the longest time. I want to step into heaven as God's only, as God's beautiful chosen son. <laughs> and hear those precious words, well done, good and faithful, sir. So that's it. Let's pray uh, and we'll get on with our week. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. We thank you for all that you have provided. We thank you for all that you're providing. We thank you for all that you will continue to provide. God, we ask that you help us to live lives that are dedicated to you, that choose you daily. And God, we thank you for loving us despite our failures. We thank you that your mercies are new each day. Boy, we need <laughs> So please be with us now, God. Keep us healthy, keep us safe, keep us strong. Help us to glorify you in all things, at all times, in all ways. In Jesus' name we love you. Amen. I love you guys. For those of you that hung in, thank you. Uh, and I'll catch you on Sunday. Love you. Thanks for joining us for this Calvary Baltimore B-Side. If you'd like to get in touch or come visit us at Calvary Baltimore, our website is calvarychapelbaltimore.org. You can email us at calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you've been blessed by today's teaching and would like to donate to the work that God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. Until next time, as Pastor Josh says, study the Word, to live the Word, to share the Word. And join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore B-Side.